Um, while you're sitting down, I would invite you to open in your Bible to Psalm 111, where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible and in need of one, you can just put your hand up in the air at some point, and somebody will probably put one in it. So, a Bible, that is. So, um, great. While you're turning there, Psalm 111, we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning. Um, want to just uh, say a few words of appreciation as a church. If you, many of you uh, responded to the thing that we do annually around this time of year, Operation Christmas Child. Um, this past week at Central Campus, there was um, just a handful of volunteers, pretty much from Thursday through yesterday. There's a good number of folks in the chapel over at Central um, yesterday just packing boxes of all the gifts that many of you, I don't fully know how the whole process works, but what I do know is you all stepped up to the plate. Thank you so much. Um, I know many of you just coordinated Pat Collins. If you see her, make sure you encourage her and thank her. Um, many of you are also helping with that process. And so just want to take a minute and just thank you and just praise God real quick. Could you, so, so real quick before, before we do that, 1,744, that's how many boxes we filled. So praise God. Very good job. Thanks for participating in that. And as a church, you know, we um, recently went through a vision series, what we believe um, God is calling us to simply to glorify him by making disciples of Jesus. And the way that we bring glory to him is through the whole church forming whole disciples of Jesus for the good of all people. We believe that this great work of disciple making is actually a blessing for the world around us. And so this Operation Christmas Child, while it's a simple thing that many of you participated in, it's a strategic way um, to bless the world and to point them um, towards the living hope that we have in Jesus. And so thanks so much for participating in that. Um, as I said this morning, it's kind of a one-off sermon. We're looking at Psalm 111, and it's really just a psalm of thanksgiving. And so I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety, uh, 10 verses. Um, but before I do, just want to tell you sort of where we're going with the text, what the big idea is of the message this morning. The big idea is simply this. God has called us to be a people of praise. He's called us to be a people of praise and we have good reason to be. We have a good reason, we have good reason to be a people who praise him. God's called us to be a people of praise. Recently was at a couple of uh, sporting events, University of Iowa sporting events, you know, they got the big screen. If you've been to any of their football games, basketball games, I think wrestling meets and a um, you know, number of other, uh, I don't know what else, volleyball is going on right now, I think. Um, if you've been to any of them, they all often do this thing where they kind of pan during timeouts, they pan the audience and they take like video images, this camera kind of settles in on an individual or a row, a couple of seats of people and, and their, screen, their, their picture emerges and appears on the screen above. And oftentimes it catches people off guard and it's, you know, smiley and happy, but every now and again, the Lord is gracious to us and he blesses us by that camera settling on somebody's face who just ain't going, right? They are not feeling it, and no matter what you do, they're not smiling. Like, they're just determined not to do it. Um, sometimes it, it'll appear on somebody, you know, the camera will kind of settle in, and you'll see somebody who they have, they really don't look like they have any interest in smiling. Then all of a sudden, magically, a big smile appears across their face. They understand the game. They know how to play it, right? Oh, camera's there. Smile. Let's be happy. Unfortunately, I think oftentimes this is something that, especially I think in Iowa, sort of the Midwest nice, um, sort of Iowa, you know, comes out of many of us here where we feel kind of sort of this constant pressure to maybe just fake it. How you doing? Good, right? A constant sort of pressure, even sometimes on Sunday mornings, to just slap a smile on our face and just fake it. 
here's the deal. The temptation could be to look at this psalm and to think that that's what God is calling us to do. It's absolutely not what he's calling us to do. He has called us to be a people of praise. And he has given us reason after reason after reason to be a people who praise him. Regardless of what's going on around us, we can be a people of praise. And Psalm 111 reminds us of that fact. And so I'm going to read it, then I'll pray, and we'll dive into this really special psalm. This is God's word, Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with, the faith, with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word this morning, Lord, we just ask that you would um, reveal your truth to us right now. Lord, that you would use this chapter in the book of Psalms um, to form us into being the people you have called us to be, a people um, who praise you, whose praise just remains on our lips Lord, I just ask that you would show us right now the reasons that you give us for that, Lord, and that you would um, use your word this morning, um, write it on our hearts, and form us into the people you've called us to be. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you're keeping notes this morning, this, this walking through this text, because it is such a significant portion of Scripture, it does kind of break down structurally according to the way that it lays out as we see it just verse after verse, but we'll be kind of bouncing around um, within Psalm 111, so you'll be, you'll be served well if you have your Bible open. Um, three points for us this morning. First is we'll discover the commitment to praise, the commitment to praise. Secondly, we'll look at the reason for praise, and then thirdly, we'll finish by considering the look of praise. So the commitment to praise, the reason for praise, and the look of praise. First, the commitment to praise. Here's the deal. We were all made to praise. We have to understand this. As we approach this text, we have to understand that you and I were made to praise. It should not be a shock to us this morning that as we open up the Bible, we discover a song. And that's ultimately what Psalm 111 is. It's a song. More specifically, it's a praise song. It was given to us by God so that we might reflect on all that God is and all that he has done. And the response should be us singing his praises. That's exactly what Psalm 111 is. As you read through it, it's important to know that it's an acrostic. Many psalms are, a number of them are. That means that there's 22 lines and every line begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The following psalm, 112, is also structured in a very similar way. In fact, these two psalms, 111 and 112, are often read together and they're often preached 
together because they're not just similar in their structure, they're also similar in their subject matter. But we'll get into more on that in a little bit. You should not be shocked that we are looking at a song of praise. Praise songs are all over the place. You turn on your radio any day of the week and you will discover one praise song after another. Oftentimes, these praise songs are directed towards a lover. I don't know if there's any Roy Orbison fans in the house. Pretty woman, right? It's an example of a praise song. Praise songs are all around us. We are very familiar with us. Every one of us, no matter who you are, praises someone or something. Praise is a fundamental force, drive in human life. It is a drive that we were born with, that we were designed by God to have. Deep within our souls, we have a sense. The truth is that there is something more, something more to life than what we know in our limited experience. God tells us in his word that he has planted eternity in the very depths of our hearts. Simply means that there's, there's not only a recognition that there's more to life, but also there's a longing that you and I share that we will one day realize that thing which transcends our life. Yesterday I was at the football game. I don't know if this is a normal thing, but um, I noticed it. Uh, Freddie Mercury, there was, a, there was a portion, I think it's after, is this a normal tradition? It seemed like everybody there knew except for me. But uh, I think it was after the third quarter maybe that there's a Freddie Mercury kind of appears on one of the jumbotrons or the whole thing and he kind of starts off this call and response where the whole stadium kind of joins in with him. And as I was listening and watching this, it made me think of a, a Freddie Mercury song. No? Am I wrong? You don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, don't, I was there. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Okay. Just making sure. Uh, but it made me think of a really uh, a famous Freddie Mercury song um, called, uh, where's it at? There it is. There must be more, there must be more to life than this. Maybe you're familiar. It's a, really a, a beautiful song. But I just want to read a few lyrics from this song. It says that there must be more to life than this. How can we cope in a world without love? Mending all those broken hearts and tending to those crying faces there must be more to life than living. There must be more that meets the eye. See, when Freddie writes that song, th there's something that he's onto. He's onto something. Something that he recognizes is deep within every single one of us. A recognition and a longing to experience that which sort of transcends our experience. Recently I was interacting with an individual who, was, was just talking with them, an individual who was experiencing significant challenge, significant pain in their life. Not a follower of Jesus. And as I was speaking with this individual, grew up, he has a history in the church, he's very familiar with the Bible, but has throughout his life just rejected the truth of the gospel. He's just rejected, chosen not to follow after God. But in this moment, when significant challenge and pain had entered into his life, I could see on his face that he was coming to terms with this reality. That there must be something more to life than living. There must be something more that meets the eye. See, the reality is every single one of us are designed to be caught up into something that is larger than our lives. 
Our lives which are limited. And when we face and recognize those limitations, there's something inside of us that wants more, that longs for more. And that the reason why that happens is because God says he buried it inside of each one of us. We were made, we were designed for something that is larger than just ourselves, that transcends even our experience. The problem is, however, while there is this sort of, it's been referred to as a God-sized hole that is placed in our heart, the problem of humanity is that we have historically chosen to fill that hole with just about anything but God himself. We, we, we search for substitutes, whether it's by praising, rather than directing our praise towards God, we direct our praise to ourselves, or maybe our kids and, and their successes, or maybe our career, or a sports team, or a, a new author, or a new musician, or, or possessions, a new house, or a fancy car, that we continually seek to fill that God-sized hole that he's given us with anything but God. There's one theologian that likens that practice to trying to fill the Grand Canyon with marbles. Good luck. The truth is that that praise that we were designed to give is meant to be directed exclusively to God. And that's precisely what the psalmist does here in Psalm 111. This commitment is made by the worship leader in the midst of the congregation for the praise of God and God alone. Look at verse 1. It says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart with the company of the in the company of the congregation sorry in the company of the upright in the congregation our praise that God has that longing that he's placed inside of us that praise is to be directed to God and to God himself alone with our whole heart not with half our heart not with a portion of our heart not just on the good days or just when we feel like it we were designed to give God praise and to give it to him and him alone. The Bible tells us this is in fact exactly why he made us. Isaiah 43, 21, when he describes and explains the purpose for you and for me on this planet, this is what he says. The people whom I formed, he's, he's talking about his people. They're people that he has formed for himself that they might declare his praise. This is the fundamental meaning of your existence and my existence, that God receives our praise. We were designed, created to give it to him. Secondly, why? On what basis, on what grounds is he worthy of praise? Well, if we continue to read the psalm, we'll see in verses 2 through 9 that he provides a significant reason why we ought to praise him. See, here's the, here's the deal. There's many of us that walk through these doors on a Sunday morning, and the reality is the last thing we feel like doing is praising God. There are hurts, there are pains, there are challenges, frustrations that you've endured all week long in your life. Maybe there's a significant season of challenge that you are walking through right now, and you just don't feel like it. Is God simply saying, well, pull it together, slap a smile on your face, and just fake it? That's what we're all tempted to do. Is that what he's wanting? Is that what he is expecting us to do? Absolutely not. He gives us ample reason to praise him. And the reason that we see here in this chapter kind of falls into two different categories. The first category is this. 
just simply because of who God is. Why should we praise him? Why should we be committed to praising him? Why should we be a people of praise? Answer, because of who God is, who he is. His character, throughout the chapter, the psalmist directs us to consider aspects of God's character. The whole chapter is just simply peppered with certain words that describe who God is. If you just look down and scan, you'll see the words just jumping off of the page. His righteousness endures forever. He's a righteous God. The Lord is gracious. He's gracious and he's merciful. He's a provider. This is who he is, a provider. He's faithful. He remembers his covenant. He's just, he's a redeemer, he's holy, and he's awesome. This is who God is. And because he is all of these things, the only proper response from his people is to praise him. And we know that this is who God is. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great, but how do we know that's who he is? Well, here's how. We all just looked into the Bible. We opened up his word, and he simply told us who he is. How do we discover his character? How do we understand who God is? Well, we discover it primarily through his word, and we also see it through his works, the way that he moves. And here's the deal. This truth that the reason, the motivator for our praising God is rooted in fundamentally who he is, his character, is such good news for us. It's such good news for us. Because an aspect of God's character, one of the, the grand features of who God is, is that he is an unchanging God. He does not change. These words that were written some thousands of years ago, as we read them now, God is still righteous. He's still holy. He's still awesome. He does not change. While the world around us is constantly changing, while our lives, we see storms crashing in one after another, difficult season after another, God never changes. He never changes. Such good news for us. What's so comforting about Psalm 111 is that it's a constant reminder. And I mean it's a constant reminder. It's one that is always here, ready for us to tap into. It's always true that our ability or our reason to praise God is not limited to our circumstances. It is not bound by our story or confined by our experiences. Because the object of and the reason for our praise is an unchanging person. You consider the covenantal name of God. The name that he revealed to Moses to tell the people of Israel just who God was. Think about the name that he revealed to Moses. What do I tell them? Who do I tell them sent me? Do you remember how God responded? He said, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the unchanging one. I am. The psalmist is able to root his reason for praise not in who God was, but in who God is. And you and I are able to do exactly the same thing. 
for the Lord does not change. Doesn't change. What great confidence is that for us? It should be a tremendous amount of hope and comfort for us. That our praise is not conditioned, conditioned on our, our circumstances. God does not change. It's reason to give him praise. Secondly, not just on who he is, but also as we reflect and consider on what God has done. You see this again all throughout the psalm. His character is shown through his word, yes, but also through his work. And among the works referred to and are, they sort of are all related to his covenant that he established with his people. You see a few, his provision for food for those who fear him. His giving the nations uh, to his people as their inheritance. This promise of land, that I'll give you a land. He sends, it says in verse 9, he sends redemption to his people. Sends redemption to his people. Though there's no shortage of difficulty and challenge throughout the history of Israel, God had established a covenant with his people. And he would be faithful to them and their redemption would be the result of his work and his faithfulness. Folks, the story of the Bible, the story of God is, is the story of a God who's on the move, a God who is at work. And it's a God who shares himself with his people. So often when we pick up this book, when we open it, when we read it, we think of it primarily about a book that is giving us commands or maybe providing for us good advice, and while there certainly are commands in the Bible, that's not primarily what the book is about. It's not primarily about telling us what we should do. But rather, it is primarily a story of redemption, telling us the story of what God has done. Israel, as God's covenant people, were, were able to consider the testimony of their ancestors, the story of their deliverance and God's faithfulness, and, and they could do that then. If they could do it then, think about how much more we are able to do this right now. In fact, the truth is we have more reason than ever to praise God when we consider his great work of salvation our deliverance and, and God's faithfulness to us is seen fully in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ himself, who is, the Bible tells us, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 24, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God himself wrapped himself in flesh, came to earth and dwelled among his people. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God sent to us, to you and to me, redemption in the, in the person and in the work of Jesus, in the form of a person, the great redeemer, Jesus himself. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, this great redeemer. And this Jesus died willingly in your place and in my place to deliver us all from the power and the penalty of sin and to bring us back into favor with God. That's the work that he accomplished, your redemption and my redemption. All the characteristics of God that are expressed in this psalm is righteousness, God's righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, 
his redemption, his justice, and his power, all of these attributes. We, as people of Christ, don't just get to see them. We get to experience them for ourselves. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians that the church would, he asked that the church would be full, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, being filled with all the fullness of God himself. This is what God offers you and me as people of the King, King Jesus, the fullness of God. And the truth is, this is what we have in Christ, this and this alone is worthy of praise. This reality should cause us to be a people who can constantly rejoice because we've been saved from the punishment of our sin and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. He calls us his own. Not, nobody in here deserves that. But God offers it to us. And as a result, regardless of the circumstances that we go through, and I don't want to minimize those because they are significant challenges that many people in this room are going through right now. And it doesn't mean that those challenges will cease, that the winds of life will stop crashing against our boat. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that when the winds pick up and your boat begins to take on water, that even during the most darkest times of your life and of mine, that we still, if we're in Christ, have plenty of reason to praise God. It comes from a, it's, this is from a totally different realm. The rest of the world looks at us and says, what's wrong with that person? Are they just faking it? No. No. We've been able to experience something that transcends even our own life and existence. So finally, what is the look of praise? So somebody who, who is, if we really embrace this lifestyle of being a people who are constantly praising God, who, are, who have the perspective in front of us continually of all that God has, is and all that he has done, what type of people will we look like? Well, the first is this. We'll see it in the text. The first is this. We will be a people who revere God for who he is. Look at verse 10 and the way the psalm comes to a close. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The awesome nature of God, his character and his, his work should naturally lead us to fearing him, which then should lead us to obeying him. See the progression that exists here. Now, it's important to understand fear properly. Fear does not look like an anxious criminal who's standing before an all-powerful judge. It's not the type of fear, the image that should come to mind here. What should come to mind when we consider the fear of God for the children of God is that we should liken it to a vulnerable, trusting child falling into the arms of a good and loving parent. That's what it means. It's a reverential fear, one that, that is earned out of respect and love. And if we long to understand God's word and his works, then we must maintain this attitude before him. It's the foundation of all biblical spiritual wisdom and understanding. It begins, the Bible says, over and over 
by fearing God. This fear, though, should lead to, rep- should lead to obedience. All those, it says in verse 10, who practice it. The ending of this psalm really sort of opens the door for the next psalm, 112. It, it paves the way for, for what will come next. And in Psalm 112, what we're given, it would be a good thing for you to maybe read this week in your quiet time. Um, we're given a picture of what a life looks like for those who fear God. For those who live repeatedly by praising God. It's a picture of what that life looks like. It's a, it describes a person. It says that their righteousness endures forever. That they will never be moved. The, the people who are given to praising God continually will never be moved. They will, check this out, not be afraid of bad news. Doesn't that sound good? How about this one? Their heart will be steady. Their heart will be steady. How about this one? says that he has distributed freely he has given to the poor that's an interesting twist not really you know why because the person who's constantly living a life of praise and thanksgiving understands that they have so much to praise God for they have so much to be thankful for what are they going to do about it they're just going to give stuff away They're going to just see people that are in need around them. And rather than moving away from the need, they're going to move towards the need. Because they have been blessed over and over and over again by God and his gracious provision for them. They're going to be people who hold things in this life loosely. They see needs and they step up to the plate. They don't just pray for an answer. They think about how they can be an answer to that person's need. This is the reason why the Thanksgiving offering is so strategic for us every year to build into our church a rhythm where we stop and consider how God has blessed us and then we intentionally take an offering and we we give it to people who could be blessed by the way that God has blessed us in our community and throughout the nations this is the exact purpose of the thanksgiving offering secondly not just do we revere God's name for who he is we also rejoice with others. Notice in verse 1 the psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. What an amazing vision for worship in this church. When we show up here on Sunday morning, what is it that we should be prepared to do? That every single week. Whole heart before God in the company of our brothers and sisters. Not at home, Certainly there's a place for this, but he's not at home when he's writing this. He's leading corporate worship. Not at home, not by himself. He says in the company of others, in the congregation. He goes to the sanctuary. He goes to church to pour out his heart in praise. When we enter this room on a Sunday and join the chorus of praises from our, uh, to our triune God, guess what we do? We hear one another. This, for us, does multiple things. It encourages our heart. It reminds us, you are not alone. And it directs our focus and shapes our perspective and reminds us of the many ways that God has blessed us. For just a moment, life circumstances, the troubles of the world that assault us day in and day out suddenly are held up against the glory of the living God. Strength, power, unity. 
our voice joins the voices of those in this room and creates a chorus of defiance that is shouted out in the face of sin and death as Jesus is proclaimed and the victory that he has won is celebrated. We rejoice with others. Thirdly, what else do we do? What else does a life of praise look like? Somebody who reveres his name, rejoices with others, and finally remembers his works. This will be the last point. Look at verse two. It says, the great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Again, notice the progression. Studying the works of the Lord leads to delight in the Lord, which produces praise to the Lord. Okay? That's the progression. Studying, pouring, your, pouring over God's word, considering the many ways that he has been at work, leads us to delighting. It produces in us delight. We're not going to praise him if we don't delight in him. And then the result is that we praise him. So what's good news about that is that, guess what? If you're, if you're struggling, if you look at your life and you're like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not very thankful. It's easy for me to walk through the, the week without considering what God has done for me. How do I change that? Answer, open up this book and study how God is at work. Study what he has done. Study the story of redemption I'm excited this coming year as we, as a, as a church, start a Bible reading plan. It'll be sort of a, a guided tour that we'll take through the story of redemption. And the intent of this tour is not simply to increase our knowledge, but also to ignite in us a delight that will over, you know, flow in praise to God. Look at verse 4. It says, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered this word remember could also be translated uh, that he is, could be translated that he has caused his wonders to be a memorial. It's another way that this word could be translated a memorial. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Abraham, as he traveled across the ancient Near East, that he left wells and altars and he, he left them as memorials that God was with him, guiding him directing him. They were, they were some sort of relic that people in the future could look back on and could see God's provision and guidance and his work. And they would point to who God was. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Joshua and as he, as he leads God's people into the land of Canaan, to the promised land, and they cross over the Jordan River. If you, if you remember, uh, God had directed, when they got on the other side in the land of Canaan, he directed Joshua to have 12 men go into the waters and each take out a stone. 12 stones, and they were to take those stones and they were to lay them on the ground, the place where they would lodge that night, the first night in the promised land. Why would he do that? He says that this might be a sign among you. That when your children come to you and they, they see the stones, they would say, what do those stones mean to you? That you would tell them what God had done. It says that these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And, and those stones were a, a visible, real reminder of God at work. And this reminder is a reminder that we all need. But here's the deal. The, the memorial for God was not simply 
stones and altars and wells. The ultimate memorial, the ultimate memorial for God and how he works, ultimately in the Old Testament, is the nation of Israel. That when you would look at those people, you would be able to, to understand God's character, who he is, and also him at work, what he does, how he redeemed those people. And the same is true for us. We don't go about building stones necessarily, but we are living, breathing memorials of God at work. Recipients of his grace and his mercy, displays of his splendor. When we interact with each other, you are talking to a living memorial, an expression of God's redemptive work throughout history. We should not forget that. So what are we to do about it? In closing, two things. This week is Thanksgiving, right? About to have Thanksgiving. Some of us are going to shove a bunch of turkey in our faces. It's going to be fantastic, right? Watch a lot of football. Not sure how you do it, but have fun. It's going to be a blast. But there's two things I want to ask you to do this week. Two things. The first is this. I want you to take time this week and reflect on what God has done in your life. Just, just reflect. Take some time and to consider God's work in your life. Now, some of us, maybe writing down journaling comes very naturally. For me, it does not. Um, but I do it occasionally. Every now and then I'll open up my journal. It'll be like months that will span between them. But even, do it, even then, I look back and I, I do it. I force myself to do it occasionally because... They serve as wonderful reminders of how God has worked in my life. And oftentimes, I need those reminders. If you want to be a person faithful to the psalm, a person of praise, you must remember regularly what God has done for you. You must. So reflect on God's work in your life. Secondly, I want to encourage you to share how God has worked in your life with somebody else. It could be spouse, be somebody in your family. Maybe your kids have never heard your testimony, how you came to know Jesus. Don't wait, tell them. Share with somebody. It could be somebody who does not know Jesus. And you could just think of one example of how God has provided for you, how God has cared for you, how God has encouraged you, how you've seen his hand at work in your life. I want you to commit two things. First, remember his work in your life. And two, share it with somebody. Be an encouragement to somebody. Point them ultimately. You're a memorial. Show off your God. Do it this week. Sound good? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the reminder that it is um, that you are God who is awesome, you're God who's holy, and you are God who is on the move. And uh, Lord, I just thank you that you invite us into the work that you are doing and that we get to participate in that. And I just pray that you would um, show us, each one of us individually, precisely what that looks like for us this week. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.